John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I have said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and uh, welcome to uh, Christ Community in the Leewood campus. I'm Tom and uh, I have the joy of serving on our teaching team and I hope you're encouraged by uh, the sense of God's presence here with us and uh, we are grateful you chose to come worship with us this morning. Well, I'm not a big mystery buff, but I will confess to you, well, it's not too much of a secret anymore after the first service, uh, there have been times in my life when I've watched the television show, Unsolved Mysteries. Now, now please stay. Don't, don't leave. Maybe you're an Unsolved Mystery fan. But the show Unsolved Mysteries uh, had a way of drawing you in with sort of this eerie opening music. And it probed the greatest puzzles of the world, right? Unsolved murders, strange phenomenon. And what may be surprising to you is how amazingly popular this television show was. Do you believe that it received six Emmy Awards? 580 episodes were filmed. Now, if you are an Office fan, I mean, I know it's all reruns now. But to compare it, The Office went nine years. This show went from 1987 to 2010. Do your math. The Office had 2,001 episodes, for goodness sakes. Now, what is the success of this Unsolved Mysteries thing? I think it points to an important truth that mysteries uniquely pique our curiosity, don't they? Even in our modern scientific world, we realize there are more and more mysteries. Now, whether we encounter them in a riveting novel or on a screen, or in a research academic project, or a mystery in everyday life. Isn't it true? We live in a very mysterious world. Now, if there's one word that I would suggest, perhaps, best describes Christmas, it is the word mystery. If you have read the New Testament at all, you'll know that there are four gospel writers Matthew and Luke give us glimpses of the historical events that first Christmas. Things like, well, maybe he was not annoying, I don't know, annoying innkeeper, a very overwhelmed Joseph, and a very, very pregnant Mary. A bunch of scruffy shepherds in the fields around Bethlehem, for sure. And then the story of these three wise dudes, these magi, who travel all across the globe or the Arabian Peninsula following a star, for goodness sakes. 
But it is the gospel writer John who invites us to ponder the deeper mysteries of the Bethlehem manger. What is this mystery? And why on earth does it matter? If you have a Bible with you, electronic or paper, turn with me to the Gospel of John. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Now this morning we are continuing our Advent series. We've entitled That You May Believe. And we are probing the first chapter of the Gospel of John. After last week's message, I had a chuckle. Someone came up to me and said, classic, Tom, this is really big stuff. And I said, you got it. This is big stuff. The prologue of John is massive stuff. John does not traffic in small trivia. He helps us plunge in to some very deep truths. As we said last week, in the prologue of his gospel, John addresses perhaps the most difficult human struggle in the world. That is, the problem of evil in the world and in our hearts. So it's not surprising that this brilliant writer now turns not just to the deepest human struggle on the problem of evil, but the deepest longing in your heart and mind. It is in this extension section of the prologue where we encounter the deepest human, human longing of your heart and mind. May I suggest that is to be truly known and to be truly loved. Now, I want you to join me this morning and peer into the mystery of the manger. And I want us to hear John's brilliant words that are unpacked in sequence in three bedrock truths of this mystery, the scaffolding of the mystery. The first one that we're going to look at is that God becomes one of us. Secondly, God reveals himself to us and third, in this brilliant crescendo, God shows his love for us. Now, if you have your Bible open, you will notice that the bedrock truth number one emerges at the first part of verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If it was shocking for John earlier in the prologue to assert that Jesus was the eternal logos, that Greek word that captured the sense of the first century, that unifying principle of universe, the rationality, the reason, if that was a stretch, and equate Jesus as the divine creator God, what John asserts here in verse 14 is even more mind-blowing and jaw-dropping. What John is saying is that in space-time history, God became one of us. And if you look at it closely, if you, if you listen to what is between the lines of the text, it is as if John also expects the reader, Jew and Gentile, because remember he has given the welcome mat of all the world at the prologue, inviting everyone into the story. You hear the reaction, don't you? From his Jewish audience, he says, you can just hear it. John, have you lost your Jewish mind? From the broader world, it's, John, no religion or worldview would ever assert such nonsense. 
John, you are saying, get this right, you are saying that God is both God and man. But this is exactly what he's saying. It is a mystery that the early church followers of Jesus in the first centuries of the church grappled deeply with. On the one hand, some asserted that this baby born in a manger can't be fully God. On the other hand, this baby born in a manger, some said, can't be fully human. But in declaring to us, the Word became flesh. John holds two delicate truths together in tension. What he is saying is Jesus is fully God and fully human. Without ceasing to be truly and fully God in any way, God takes on humanity. Now, whether you've been in church a lot or not, or read the Bible, you know, that's pretty amazing. And think for a moment about the very down-to-earth implications of what John is declaring of God becoming a baby in a Bethlehem manger. In Mary's womb, God became a handful of cells. God experienced the beauty and the mess of childbirth. God nursed at Mary's breast. In Mary's arms, God cried, he cooed, he laughed. In Mary's arms, God slept, he burped, he messed his diapers. Remember the first time I visited Bethlehem. Liz and I were doing a graduate study program in Israel, living in Jerusalem. And we took this basically five-mile trip from Jerusalem north to Bethlehem. We went to what is called the Church of the Nativity. Maybe you've been there. But in archaeology and history, we don't know a lot of places exactly where these events occurred. But this one, we know with extraordinary historical and intellectual confidence. When I stood over this manger cave section, because that's what it was, where Jesus was born and looked within feet or meters with the highest sense of confidence. It took my breath away. Peering into the manger, I was struck by the mystery and profundity of that space. Mark Lowry's Christmas song Mary, did you know, I think captured for me best that incredible moment. Mary, did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? Mary, did you know when you kissed your little baby, you kissed the face of God? Amazing. But John says, this is true as true. Now, let's not forget the other gospel writers. Uh, they remind us of Jesus not only being a baby in a manger, but growing up from boyhood to adulthood. What are the implications of this text? Jesus, God in the flesh, went through puberty. 
kids, teenagers, dealt with hormones, felt every range of human emotion, God in the flesh got hungry. I don't know if he got hangry or not. I'm not sure on that. God got tired. Even without a hint of sin, God got angry. God, who spent the vast majority of his time on this planet Earth in a Nazareth carpenter shop, had sawdust on his hand and holy sweat on his brow. I'm guessing that God in the flesh had a difficult boss. He certainly had difficult customers. God in the flesh enjoyed a genuine hearty laugh. He enjoyed a tasty meal and celebration. God in the flesh felt grief of losing a friend to death, of being misunderstood, of being rejected and forsaken by loved ones. God in the flesh felt the whip come across his back and the nails in his hands and feet and the sword pierce his side of a Roman crucifixion. God knows what it's like. God in the flesh knows what it's like to enter the valley of the shadow of death. God in the flesh died. If you are a Christian here this morning, this doctrine of the incarnation of God taking on human flesh, that's what that means. God puts on human skin is one of the most shocking things we believe. And if you don't consider yourself a Christian yet, friend, this, rightly so, may seem like this is the strangest thing to believe. But let me say, wherever you are on that scale, it is foundational to the Christian faith. If what John is saying about the Bethlehem manger is not true, the Christian story implodes on itself and is absurdly incoherent. If Jesus was anyone else but the incarnate, sinless Son of God, he couldn't be an atonement sacrifice for our sins. The cross would be the grandest human tragedy, and the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus, would be a hopeless muse. But if the incarnation mystery is true, it is life-altering, world-changing for you and me. John is declaring, it's true. So if you sense struggle in your heart, resistance in your mind, would you just stay with me a little bit longer? As John unpacks the second bedrock truth. Remember, if you've read the Gospel of John, John has a persuasive attempt in his book. And that is to persuade us to believe in this Jesus. Not only... God who became one of us. But notice where John goes next. Second truth. God reveals himself to us. In verse 14, as it continues, look at me. It says, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, you remember if you were here last week, we began, as we moved through this prologue, we said that John begins with cosmic history, a cosmic Christmas. And he funnels down literally very quick to a very earthly Christmas. John welcomes all people to his story. 
Jews and Gentiles. It is the ultimate welcome mat of inclusion. Here, John tips his literary hat to his Jewish readers. He uses a word impregnated with Old Testament meaning and significance. The word here in the original language of Greek is translated into English, dwelt. But the imagery conveyed here is compelling. It's not proper English, but if we were to translate it really close to the text, it would be God tented among us or God tabernacled among us. John is saying that this Jesus is the new tabernacle where God's glory dwells. John is making this amazing clear connection to Jewish Torah, where in the book of Exodus, chapters 33 and 34, we find what's called a tent of meeting. It was in this tent of meeting where the biblical text says God spoke, and here's the language used with its limitations, face to face with Moses. What is John saying here? John is saying here in the text, in a similar but much greater, 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 greater way, God is speaking to us in Jesus, who has now come to us. In the message, Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse outstandingly. He says, the word, that is the Logos, Jesus, became flesh and blood, and notice, moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> some text, some translations say, take up residence. Yeah, that's it. Because it's not just Moses with his face-to-face -face encounter in this tent of meeting. No, get this, don't miss this. God has now moved into your neighborhood and mine. John appeals, notice, not only to his Jewish readers who have an Old Testament backdrop, but also to the entire Greco-Roman world of his time because he points to a common bridge. He points to personal eyewitnesses of Jesus. Now notice, if you have your Bible open or you're listening carefully, the first time in his brilliant prologue that John the writer explicitly writes himself into the story is right here. And he does it with a first-person plural pronoun, this little hinge word, we. Do you notice what he says? He, along with others, says, we have seen Jesus. We have seen his tent of meeting. This glory, and this word glory is just really rich, uh, it comes from an Old Testament Hebrew word, but it's the idea of substance, that which is most substantive of all reality. And it finds its tributary of meaning through truth and grace and power and goodness. It's reserved for deity and divinity. And John says, we've seen it. We've seen it. Now, let's not forget that John, the gospel writer, is an amazing, credible witness. For three years, think about this, for three years, the gospel writer had spent every waking moment with Jesus. Three years. And when you spend that much time with someone for three years, every waking moment, you know them really well. So John is saying, I am a credible witness here. Think about that. 
John was with Jesus on the most exhilarating mountaintop moments, the most excruciating valleys in his life. Think with me what John is saying. John's saying, I was right there when Jesus turned water into wine. I was there when he took a few loaves and fed a multitude. I was there in one of the most amazing moments of the whole New Testament when Jesus, on the Sea of Galilee, when the storm is raising, Jesus goes, Shalom! Everything stops instantly. All reality heeds his command. I was right there. I was one of them that said, Who is this that even the wind and sea respond to his command? This is John. And John in his gospel, if you read it, I encourage you to read it. He says, I'm the disciple Jesus loved. This is not a self-promotional thing. He is saying, I knew Jesus the most intimately. Because I am a credible witness. That's why he says it. He's not drawing attention to himself. He's drawing attention to his persuasive credibility. Don't miss that. The idea here is just, I knew Jesus better than anybody else that walked the face of the earth. John is saying, I saw his divinity with my own eyes. John unpacks more of that because that's a big statement, right? That's a hard thing to believe. So when he writes what's called the first, second, and third epistle of John that's in the New Testament, he begins his first epistle with what's called in Hebrew a, a midrashic echo of the prologue. He gives more texture to what he already said in John 1, prologue. And this is what he says. And notice, as you listen, the multi-sensory, indisputable experience with Jesus in the flesh. He writes, that which was from the beginning. Does that sound like the prologue? Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the logos of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John is reminding his readers, there's a whole bunch of people, including myself, that saw it. We heard it. We touched it. And John continues making his persuasive case, not only pointing to himself, but the celebrity of the first century in the Jewish world is John the Baptist. A lot of Johns here. It gets a little confusing, I know. But in the first century, notice, John the Baptist was like a superstar. And he is bursting with credibility. And John the Gospel writer quotes John the Baptist. That's what you do when you want credibility, right? And what does John the Baptist say in verse 15? Hey, I was, everybody knew this, I was born to Elizabeth before Jesus to Mary. But Jesus existed before me. John the Baptist is saying with a megaphone, Jesus is God in the flesh. Wow. See, as we reflect on God becoming human, let's not miss some of, just some at least, of the profound implications of Jesus' incarnation. Think with me for a moment. And there's many more places we could go. So let's go to a couple of them, okay? First, the incarnation of God in the flesh is a definitive stamp on the goodness of the physical, material world we live in. When our creator God in Genesis created the world, he looked at it and said, it's good. He meant it. He meant it. 
Also, the incarnation affirms the psalmist declaration that our physical bodies, often described in the New Testament as tents, by the way, are wonderfully and marvelously made. That our physicality, our bodies matter. Paul will even say, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And let's not miss in the times in which we live how the manger points to the intrinsic value of every human being made in the image of God. Every human deserving love and respect. And let's not miss how the manger boldly declares the sanctity of every human life, born and unborn. Manger speaks loudly to a lost world of the rightness and moral goodness of an unmarried pregnant teenager who chose not to terminate her socially embarrassing and inconvenient child. Notice with me as the text moves on in verse 16 through 17 how the gospel writer appeals to the Old Testament, to Moses. And notice he says, Jesus is far greater than Moses. He's a greater embodiment of grace and truth. The Greek text here is actually really hard to translate. It's a hard text. But the idea is not vague. The idea here is that Jesus coming to earth, that grace comes in a new categorical way. One of the ways I would translate, it's a very hard way to translate, but it's like, Grace is piled on grace, on grace, on grace, on grace. So what is John doing? You must not miss this. John takes the Greco-Roman abstraction of the logos, the eternal, in that view, organizing principle of reality, the rationality of mind, and he takes the Old Testament picture of God revealing himself on tablets of law. So logos and law. And he reframes this to a paradigm of a person. This text tells us that Jesus is the overwhelming, overflowing embodiment in his person of grace and truth. And this means to you and me that the manger declares that you and I are intimately loved and intimately known by him. If you love literature, you'll notice that very explicitly John puts in what's called a literary inclusio. That's like a bookend from verse 1 to 18 declaring Jesus' divinity. And he says, no one has ever seen God. The idea is fully. The only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus is the one that has made him known. John concludes, Jesus is the supreme revelation of God because he is God. And John is saying, if you want to see God, look at Jesus. If you want to know God, 
if you want to experience what it is to be known by God, believe in him. As the gospel writer, John, invites us to peer into the mystery of the manger, he gives us profound truths. In Jesus, first, God became one of us. Secondly, in Jesus, God revealed himself to us. But notice, thirdly, in Jesus, God showed his love for us. On that dark Bethlehem night, John is saying divine love became human flesh. And in John's epistle, he gives us a more fuller understanding of this grace upon grace and manifestation he highlights in the prologue. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. We are given the divine motivation for Jesus' entry into the world. Listen, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that is the satisfaction for our sins. So friends, peering into the Bethlehem manger, we see both bad and good news. The bad news is you and I are more sinful than we can ever imagine or know. The good news of this text is you and I are more loved than we can ever imagine or hope for. The greatest lover of your soul and mine, John says, is the very one who took the initiative. He donned human flesh. He came to earth. It is this Jesus, a baby born in Bethlehem, in a manger with animals around him that can meet the deepest longing of your heart and mind to be truly loved and truly known. One of the most brilliant scholars to ever grace Princeton University was Robert Dick Wilson. When you read about his life, you realize he had fluency in 45 languages. The story is told that Dr. Wilson was asked by a student as he reached old age, of all the scholarly pursuits he ever had, what was the most profound truth he ever discovered? And Dr. Wilson looked at him and said this, Jesus loves me, this I know. for the Bible tells me so. Throughout his gospel, this is what John declares to us. He invites us to, in faith, embrace this Jesus. John wants us to know that only Jesus can meet the deepest longings of your heart to be truly known and to be truly loved. So in the midst of the hustle and bustle of this Christmas season, can I encourage you to wrap three thoughts around your heart and mind? Three life-changing implications of the manger for your life today. First, Jesus gives you. No one else in the world understands you like Jesus. Jesus has walked in your shoes. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. He knows your dreams, your joys, your heartaches, your needs, your fears. Anything you've ever felt or are feeling, Jesus knows what it's like. He has felt the tug of temptation you have felt, the struggle of hardship you have faced, the pain of disappointment that gnaws at you, the hurtful wounds of betrayal. Jesus knows, kids, what it's like to be a kid and how hard it is to grow up. Jesus knows what it's like to be a teenager. Teenagers, 
Jesus has felt the exhilaration and frustration of work, of going to work on Monday. The sinless Son of God walked in this sinful, broken world. The idea here is Jesus is the one person who truly gets you. Not your spouse, not your parents, not your siblings, not your roommate, not your best friend. And some of us have been and are looking to our spouse, our boyfriend, girlfriend, or a close friend to be that person that only Jesus can ever be. Now, we, of course, pursue intimacy with others. That's vital for human flourishing. But no sinful person can meet the deepest longings of your heart and mind to be loved and to be fully known. No human love can fill that longing embedded within each one of us but Jesus. So if you feel incomplete, if there's a big hole in your heart, could this be why? If you are feeling unwanted, will you embrace this truth? Jesus knows you like no one else. Jesus gets you. But he not only gets you, secondly, he sacrificed for you. While we peer in the manger, we see this baby who is Emmanuel, God with us. He left heaven's glorious throne. Can you imagine? And he came to this sin-ravaged earth to rescue you and me from sin and death. When he was born in this Bethlehem cave, he looked south only five miles to where a Roman cross would stand on a hill where he would die for your sin and mine. Those who will put their faith in Jesus as their Messiah, their Savior and Lord, they will find forgiveness and new life. That was his mission. And Jesus gathered his disciples around and said, greater love has no one than this. And someone who lays down their life for his friend. But Jesus not only laid down his life for his friends, Jesus laid down his life for enemies like you and me. Apostle Paul, who persecuted Jesus in the church, encountered the risen Christ, and his life was changed. And he penned these words, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hear me carefully. No one has, will, or ever will demonstrate a more costly love or paid a greater price or given up more for you than Jesus. Not only did Jesus voluntarily die on that hideous cross, but in love unimaginable, he voluntarily left his Father's side and heaven's sinless throne with all its unimaginable beauty and glory. So was the incarnation an even greater sacrifice of love than the crucifixion? I don't know. God knows. But I do wonder. What I do know is the amount of love we have for someone can be seen by how much we will sacrifice for them. By that standard, there is no one who loves you more than Jesus. 
We don't often think of Charles Wesley's 18th century hymn, And Can It Be, as a Christmas song, but maybe we should. These words capture the mystery of the manger. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy, all immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love indeed and an amazing mystery. Jesus gets you. He sacrificed for you. But third, Jesus desires the very best for you. Each of us longs to live a life of happiness. It's hardwired in us. From the greatest philosophers to the everyday people like you and me, we long for a happy life, but where is it found? That's the question. Jesus assures us the truly good life, the truly happy life, the truly meaningful life our hearts long for now and for all eternity is only found in him. And the life God designed for us to live, we are truly known and truly loved. So in the midst of our heartaches, loneliness, fears, right, daily challenges, it's easy to doubt whether a truly happy life is possible. Yet the mystery of the manger reminds us something I want you to wrap around your heart and mind tightly that nobody, nobody has done more for your happiness than Jesus. Nobody wants your true happiness more than he does. Nobody has your back more than Jesus does. Nobody will be there no matter what any more than Jesus will be. So more than anything else, the truly good life is found in an intimate relationship with Jesus where we are truly known and truly loved. Your deepest, my deepest longing to be known and loved inevitably finds its way to a Bethlehem manger. So wherever you are at this morning, whatever you are feeling, Will you reach out to Jesus this morning? He's there for you with his nail-scarred hands. And will you join with me in looking more closely into the Bethlehem manger? And may you see not merely a cute and cuddly baby, but may you see in a fresh way the greatest lover of your soul. For his manger is not so much a mystery to be solved as it is the most glorious mystery to savor. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, creator, redeemer, Messiah, what hallowed ground you graced in that mysterious Bethlehem manger and what hallowed ground you grace in our lives and in our world. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God incarnate here to dwell, how we praise your name, Emmanuel.